Well, it's my pleasure to be here with you again today. Um, we've had um, a long relationship with this church and are so grateful for it. Um, if you don't know me, I'm a missionary with Greater Europe Mission in Germany, and I teach uh, at a seminary there preparing uh, young people for uh, ministry in that country. Uh, my wife uh, is involved with some refugee work there and in mentoring people in our church. So we lead a, a fulfilling uh, lives there and uh, are just so grateful that the Lord um, has called us to be there. It's exciting and we're glad uh, to uh, come back whenever we can to the Upper Peninsula, which is my home, and to uh, be here, uh, worship with you. And uh, uh, I I'm so grateful for your support of our ministry. Uh, I was asked if I could um, share um, from the Word, and I'm very happy to do that with you today. I want to uh, talk to you about sight and what it means to see, and particularly what it means to see Jesus. Let's read together the uh, uh, Scripture passage that's up here on the screen. It's taken from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, a very short portion. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him, and he asked him, Do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything very clearly. And Jesus sent him home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Let's pray before we um, look at what this passage has to say to us. Lord, we thank you that you're with us and that we can... Um, have your word that your spirit wants to speak to us through it. We pray that you'd give us open hearts and that you'd remind us of the truths of your works, words and give us a willing spirit that would obey you when we understand your word. Thank you that we can read it and know it by your spirit today. Amen. Seeing is really a rather interesting phenomenon when you think about it. Um, sight is something perhaps we take for granted, um, but really it's rather uh, something that um, kind of comes and goes in some ways. We don't always see what others see. Sometimes we see things that are clear or they seem clear one minute and the next minute they seem rather fuzzy. Uh, we are looking forward as a family, uh, my wife and uh, daughter and son-in-law will be joining us for the second service. And then after that, we're headed out to the family cabin up near Big Bay, right on Lake Superior, for some vacation time. And we have a beautiful view from where we are of Granite Island, about 10 miles offshore. Um, that is, sometimes we have a beautiful view of it. Sometimes it seems like you could swim out there. It's so close. Um, and at other times, it's over the horizon. And that'll change from one second to the next, really. It's rather interesting that we have that uh, phenomenon of things coming in and out of sight. Um, sometimes, I think, we don't even wish we could see things all that clearly. I remember 
um, a couple of years ago now. My wife uh, turned 50 this year. And just two, oh, two years ago, she already had uh, problems with cataracts. She, this was a very rare condition she had that came early in life. Uh, she was by far the youngest person by about 25 years in that office to get her cataracts removed. Well, everything went well. She uh, had one out of one eye, and she came home, and she had a patch on it, I remember. And um, she had to keep that on the first day. The second day, um, I was down in my um, uh, study, and all of a sudden I hear this scream, and I thought, oh, no, what's going on? And I run upstairs, and she's in the bathroom looking in the mirror. She said, I had no idea I had all these wrinkles. <laughs> I said, well, they never bothered me, and they're not that bad. But she hadn't actually seen them for a few years, you know. Um, and uh, was wish I said, we could go back. They could put it back in if you want. Uh, but uh, she was a little uh, perturbed at what she did see. So um, here's a, a, an interesting uh, uh, account we have in Mark 8, and, um, and it really is an interesting story. It's actually a very curious one, don't you think, when we look at it? It's a bit irritating, and even maybe we think a little bit inappropriate for three reasons. First of all, Jesus doesn't just directly heal this man. He uses his spit, his spittle, the first time he touches him. Usually Jesus simply commands something to happen, and it is. That's what happens. But here, and on one other occasion in Mark, um, he uses his spit to heal. Now, in ancient times, uh, people thought that spit had healing power. In particular, the spit of a man who was regarded as um, being very special to the gods was thought to bring about healing. We actually have stories, for instance, of the Roman emperor Vespasian, who was in the first century, late first century. He visited Alexandra, and they brought a boy to him, um, and he spit in his eyes, and uh, this boy was able to see. That account is told by a couple of Roman historians. But why does Jesus use those kind of methods? It really seems kind of curious to us, doesn't it? Secondly, this healing story or this healing miracle is uh, interesting because it doesn't seem to work on the first attempt. The blind man's sight is only partially restored. We read that Jesus puts this bit on his eyes and then he can see vague outlines of people. It's fuzzy, but it's an improvement, but it's certainly not a full healing. And uh, this makes this miracle story not only a bit irritating to us, there's actually nothing like this in the ancient world. We have no other account of a... We have lots of accounts of healings, but never anything like this where it didn't work the first time. And you would think... With Jesus? He's the one that, that can't get it done the first time? That doesn't seem to fit. And why would Mark want us to know this? You think he might be a little bit embarrassed by it, maybe want to cover it up because it didn't really work the first time. Jesus needed two times. Um, why is he reporting this miracle to us? And thirdly, the third reason I think that it's a bit irritating is that Jesus tells the man whom he healed not to go into the town where he was from, but, or where he, they had met, but to go directly home. He obviously looked out, lived outside of town. Now, this is something that we see in the first part of Mark um, as a theme that Jesus doesn't want 
the people he's healed or the demons to tell anyone who he is, that he's the Messiah. Um, we have several instances of that in 144 and in chapter 7, verse 36, Jesus tells people he's healed, don't go and tell anybody about this. And we think, why? What's going on here? Why does Jesus want to keep this a secret? Some people have called this Jesus' messianic secret in the Gospel of Mark. It's a theme that Mark has in his Gospel, and we don't find in the others so much. And this has long been a kind of source of irritation, and it's led to some very strange explanations. What I want to do with you is to see whether we can deal with these difficulties and then see if we can make sense of them and ask ourselves what it means for us today. The first thing we have to deal with, we'll deal with these problems in reverse order, so to speak. Um, the first one is this idea of the messianic secret, that Jesus doesn't want people to know who he is in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And to understand this, we need to look at the structure of Mark. This, this did not come through very well, but I think it works. Um, this is really interesting in and of itself. I don't know if you've ever saw this about the Gospel of Mark, uh, but it begins with the verse in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then you can divide Mark into two sections with a prologue and an epilogue before and after them. Um, and so that's the very first verse. And then you have the first part of Mark uh, in and around Galilee. It's all about what happens there. And this verse, this part ends with Peter's confession in Mark 8.35 where P Peter says, you are the Messiah. Okay? And then from that point on, Jesus is headed right up to Jerusalem. He wants to go right to Jerusalem. Uh, he doesn't stop along the way to go back to Capernaum uh, or to see his family. He wants to go up to Jerusalem where he knows that he's going to be um, crucified. And, of course, then he is crucified. And at the end of that section, we have the confession of a Roman soldier who says, he, Jesus, truly was the Son of God. It's a wonderful way that Mark structures his gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And at the halfway point, Peter says, he is the Messiah. And at the end, the Roman soldier says, he is the Son of God. A beautiful structure to that. And it's important to know that this miracle story takes place right before Peter's confession where Peter says, you're the Messiah. This is the very next incident after this healing that we have in Mark 8, um, verses 22 through 26. And it's up until this point that Jesus doesn't want people to know his identity as the Messiah. He's careful not to reveal that. Not only persons he's healed are told by Jesus not to testify to their healing. Even the demons are told they shouldn't say that. Why? Why does Jesus want to keep that uh, under wraps for a while? Um, I think it has to do with the Jewish conceptions about what it meant to be a Messiah. There was a lot of talk in Jesus' time about the Messiah coming. And he was considered a miracle worker, obviously, a but also a political leader 
and a king, and above all, a military conqueror. Let's look at one piece of literature from the so-called Psalms of Solomon. Um, these, were, these are not part of the Bible, and they're not really written by Solomon, but they come from the first century, uh, you know, immediately before Jesus' time, and they show us what it meant, what people thought about when they thought about the Messiah. We read, See, Lord, and raise up for them a king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, God. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from the Gentiles who trample her to destruction, in wisdom and righteousness to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of the sinners like a potter's jar, to destroy the unlawful nations with the word of the mouth, his mouth. At his warning, the nations will flee from his presence, and he will condemn sinners by the thoughts of their hearts. So then when, that when people thought about the Messiah, they thought he's going to come in here, and he's going to overthrow the Romans, and he's going to destroy everybody, and he's going to take care of us. Um, that's what they thought about when they thought about the Messiah. And Jesus, I think, did not want people to understand him in that way, that he was that kind of Messiah. There were enough of those. There were other people running around saying, I'm the Messiah and we're going to overthrow Rome. Um, but Jesus knew he was the Messiah, but he didn't want to be pressed into that mold. He had a different mission, at least initially. Later he will come as we know from scriptures, as the conquering king. But in his first coming, he had a different mission, and he didn't want people to misunderstand that. Secondly, let's think about the healing that didn't work. What accounts for the fact that Jesus, as it seems, wasn't able to heal the blind man completely on his first attempt? And again, why does Mark want us to know this? To understand this, we need to know that Jesus stood in the biblical tradition of the prophets. He was a prophetic figure in Israel. And the prophets of Israel didn't just say things. Often they acted things out. They performed prophetic signs. And it's important that we think of Jesus in that way as well. In other words, they did things that people were expected to interpret. They had some symbolic character and they were kind of acted out prophecies. Um, we know this from the Old Testament. Jeremiah, the prophet, he was told by God he should go around Jerusalem wearing a yoke. And he did this for a long time, just walking around with a yoke on his shoulders, which, of course, symbolizes, symbolized that the people of Israel were going to become under, come under the yoke of slavery. Or Ezekiel in chapter 4. He has a couple of things he's told to do. But at one point in chapter 4, he's told by God... Ezekiel, go lay on your side in the marketplace in the temple of Jerusalem. I want you to be bound around your legs like Gulliver, so to speak, for 390 days. You just lie on your side, and um, uh, you should prepare your food over a fire made with your own excrement. That's what Ezekiel was told to do. Whenever I read that, or maybe when you read this, and you're feeling sorry about your calling, you can think about Ezekiel and think how much worse it could be. All right? um, Ezekiel complains and he said, that's really gruesome. And, and God says, okay, you can use cow dung for the fire. But he had to do that. It's a sign again of the captivity of Israel. 
And even Jesus at other points uses signs. Um, when it comes to the temple in this very week, in the week before he was uh, crucified, before he goes in the temple, he sees a fig tree, chapter 11. Maybe you've read this story. And he goes up to it and looks, demonstrates, uh, demonstra- demonstrably looking for figs, even though Mark says it wasn't even the time for figs. Figs come in the fall, this is spring, but he's performing a sign and, and he curses the fig tree. This causes a lot of people in our age problems. I hear this all the time. What does Jesus have against the poor fig tree? Nothing. He's, he loves fig trees, but he's performing a sign. And then he goes into the temple and overthrows the uh, money changers and the people uh, selling sacrifices in order to show. Um, and, and then after that, he goes back and they see that the fig tree has withered. This is a sign of judgment, and the fig tree stands for the temple. In other words, God is going to judge this temple because it hasn't brought forth the fruit that God expected. So the prophets and Jesus uh, not only speak, but they perform signs. Now, what's the sign that's going on here? Um, Again, think about Mark's storyline. We'll go back to that slide. Um, And... Uh, we said that Peter's confession uh, follows immediately after this healing. And from this point on, Jesus senses his need to get to Jerusalem. And he tells the disciples, as they're going up to Jerusalem, three different times. He says, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and I am going to suffer and be persecuted by the Romans, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And they just don't get it. Right? Um, they say, what's he talking about? What does he mean? I don't know if you, when you read this, I think, are they just stupid? How much clearer could you say that? And yet they don't get it. Why not? Because they have this paradigm in mind of what the Messiah should be, a conqueror. And it's amazing how, how hard paradigms are to overcome. Perhaps you've seen this picture um, at places. And depending on how you look at it, you will see either an old woman looking towards you or a young woman looking away. And you'll find it very hard to see the other one. If you've seen the first one, the old woman first, you'll have a hard time seeing the young woman in that picture. You have to rethink, reevaluate, get your paradigm shifted so you can understand that. Um, And we have those experiences, don't we? When I think of the how stupid could the, uh, the disciples be? I think of what happens to me when something's outside my paradigm. Several years ago, I remember I was in Chicago in the airport, and a, a person I knew really well from my town where I live in Germany um, suddenly came up in O'Hare Airport and said, Hi, Joel, good to see you here. And I turned around and I looked at him, and I didn't know who he was. I couldn't remember his name. Although we saw, had a lot of, we, this was not just an acquaintance, I knew this person fairly well. And it took me a minute to get, oh yeah, that's th- this person, because the paradigm didn't fit. He shouldn't be in O'Hare Airport. He should be in Germany. And that's what's going on here, I think, with the disciples. They just can't get it. They can't see clearly because of their paradigm. And I think that's what's going on with this sign. The first healing 
The first instance uh, of the healing of the blind man functions in that way. The blind man symbolizes the disciples. They see the outline of the truth. They have understood that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't understand completely what that means. They realize he's the Messiah, but they don't understand what sort of Messiah he is. He is one who will suffer and die to redeem his people. And they don't get that. They only come to understand that after Jesus rises from the dead. In other words, just like that blind man, they see kind of the vague outline of things, but they don't see clearly. And that has to yet happen. Thirdly, the healing was by conventional means, we said. In the ancient world, spit had this, people thought your spit had some kind of healing power. This, I think, also has a bit of symbolic character. What the disciples understood um, was what was possible to understand about the Messiah against the background of their culture. They understood what it meant for the Messiah to be Messiah in that culture. They had a very conventional, natural understanding of, uh, the, of Jesus as the Messiah. But they didn't have that supernatural understanding yet. So the healing, which was using natural means, first of all brought them part of the way. They could understand that Jesus was the Messiah, but not yet what kind of Messiah he was. Again, a Messiah who will suffer and die for his people. That had to take place. And so they go up to Jerusalem, and Jesus dies for the sins of his people, of the whole world, and he raises again, and then they can see fully who Jesus is. And then we see how that fits with this healing sign. The first time, their first experience of Jesus, yes, he's the Messiah, and then they get to know him more. They see him suffer and die and rise again, and then they get see more fully, completely, who Jesus is. What do we learn about ourselves? What does this have to do with us today? I think, first of all, our understanding, it tells us that our understanding of Jesus grows throughout our Christian life as well. You know, Job, we have this wonderful verse in the book of Job where Job, at the end of it, after all he went through, says, you know, I used to, used to be that I had heard you or heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I've experienced you, and now I know more about who you are. By the way, I don't think, uh, and we should protect ourselves from the idea that we know everything, that we figured it all out, right? Um, we always are growing in our understanding of who Jesus is as Christians. There's always more to understand. You know, when we sing the great hymn by John Newton, Amazing Grace, we say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And that's completely true. I wonder if we shouldn't sing sometimes, was blind, but now I see more. I don't see completely yet, but I'm on the way. I'm learning more about Jesus. You know, at the beginning, when we come to Christ, uh, we only see Jesus partially. It's a bit out of focus. Um, our understanding of him is only partial, but it grows over time. At the beginning, 
We're grateful that he's our savior and our friend and our helper. And that's true and that's right and that's good that we understand that. But as we go on with Jesus, we learn more about him, just like we have in the Gospel of Mark. He's not only my savior, the Messiah, he's also the son of God. He's the Lord. And I think there are two areas of growth when we realize that that we should be aware that we're growing in as Christians. And Mark makes this clear, too. First of all, we follow a suffering Messiah. And we should expect suffering and adversity to be part of our lot as well. This healing goes on, as we said, with Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah. And the next thing that Jesus says to the disciples, after Peter says, you're the Messiah, is that there are some implications for this for them as disciples. We read a little few, little, few verses later, Mark 8, 34 through 38, Jesus calls the crowd to himself with his disciples, and he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Those are hard words that follow on Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus says, now that you've understand that, understood that, you need to know that you will have to take up a cross and you need to expect some adversity if you're going to follow me. It won't be easy. Following Jesus requires the willingness to suffer for his sake. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, who's fairly well known, I think, um, once said, when Christ calls a person... He bids him come and die. This was actually literally true in Bonhoeffer's case, who uh, stood up to the Nazis and was uh, executed by them. Um, but it is also true in many other ways. It begins with putting Jesus' agenda ahead of our own. If we're following him because of what we get out of it, we're like that man at the initial point of his healing. We saw we need him. We see the outline of Jesus, but we don't see clearly. But we will see more and more of him as we go along. And Jesus says, we will gain our soul. It will turn our world upside down. Maybe it's good that we don't even know that, um, what it will require of us at the beginning. If we knew what Jesus was going to ask us to do later on, we might get cold feet. I didn't see my life taking the shape it, it has now, you know, moving overseas and spending all my adult life there. I thought, I'll just do a couple of years and get on with my life. Uh, move back to the Upper Peninsula. I've always loved it here. It's turned out very different. And, I don't know, and it's great. But I don't know if I had known that at the beginning that I would have been so ready to do it. So we grow in our knowledge of what God will require of us of what it means that he is Lord. And that's good, I think. 
Second, we need to know, and God wants us to know, that we follow a Messiah who will be glorified, and we will partake in that glory. We said Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah, and then Jesus explains what it means to be the Messiah. The next thing that happens after that is that they go up on a mountain, chapter 9, and, Mark, and Jesus is transfigured. He's surrounded by incredible light. All the light of God surrounds him there on that mountain. And this reveals, of course, the identity of Jesus to his followers. They begin to see, oh, this is much more than we ever thought. We thought he was just some kind of political messiah. This is huge. This is much more than that. This is God coming to save us. Um, but it also, I think, says something about their destiny as followers of Jesus. Philippians 3.21 says that we will be transformed into the image of his glorious body. So we'll share in the glory that Jesus has. Um, 1 John 3.5 says, when we see him face to face, we will be like him. We will be transformed and be like Jesus. So following Jesus does mean denying yourself, but it also means finding yourself. You know, there's a real you, a real me, that we have yet to meet. We don't just have a little idea of who we are really, and I, we're all often confused about it. Not just teenagers. We all know about that, what that's like, figuring out who you are. But, you know, I, bad news for your teenagers, it doesn't really end with that. There are phases in your life where you're thinking, who am I really? You get little glimpses. But there will come a day when we stand before Jesus, and we see him, we're transformed, and for the very first time, we are really the person that God meant us to be. That lies ahead of us. We'll be transformed into glory. We'll be free of sin and depression and fear and utterly at peace with ourselves because we are at peace with Jesus. So there's a glory awaiting us that we can't even imagine now. One day we will find ourselves in Jesus and it will all have been worth it. We see Jesus somewhat now, more than when we first started following him. We will see him in all his glory and be transformed in his glory. And at that point, we can say with John Newton, I was blind and now I see completely. Amen.